friend Tom from Temple, Texas is going to My name's Tom, and I'm from Temple, Texas. Grateful, grateful, happy, recovering alcoholic. Uh, John asked me this morning if I would pinch. have always enjoyed being able to share what it was like and what happened since I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date is traditionally held in Texas, July the 7th, 1980. A very good friend whose name was Blanche Devonport. Many of the Alanons. <coughs> Blanche uh, divorced her husband a number of years ago and married a very, very good friend of mine, Bob Miller, who was living in Temple at the time. Blanche died this last year, having been a victim of a very... Bob, her husband, died about six would always say, don't tell me how sick you're fooling with my life up here. You're tinkering around with my... You're dealing with areas that have had not enough time to deal with this, and I'm here trying to get well and love me and try to help me. So I haven't kind of set this out with what I want to say to you and share with you this afternoon, I would ask you to lift me up to your heart and spend these moments with you and help us walk together on this journey so that we can get well together. I've had 20 years. I just got my 20-year chip. We have our annual birthdays in my group at home on the first Sunday of the month following the sobriety month. I my 20-year chip last Sunday. So I'm <clears throat> cautioned to remember carefully those moments as I began my trip with a... It was 10 o'clock in my office, and I'm a retired now pediatrician. Uh, on a Monday morning, very busy, and a lady brought her children to see me, and as I was examining one of the children, she said to me, Tom, and she well, had been to many parties at her home, uh, drinks with her. She was a great two-fisted drinker, as I remembered. She said, Tom, I want to share something with you. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I've been recovering for about two some odd years. And this was February or March, of, and uh, just being stunned with this information. I was facing her child, and she was behind me, and uh, I don't remember except those words. And I went home that day with those words ringing in my ears and knowing in my heart that I somehow needed to hear more. Look it upon herself at that time to share with me what she was. I didn't get drunk daily, but I drank daily. I never had any serious problems in my practice with booze. I never had any reprimands from the staff, and I got along reasonably well with medical and surgical group. Um, I like to say to groups when I share that I drank enough and drank what it took in order to get here. I didn't have any to tell you about the things that happened to me along the way uh, before I decided to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I do know that so <clears throat> When it came time to 
try to think a little bit more seriously about the problem. My wife intensified it some one day at noon when I came home as I was going back to the office after lunch. She said, I want to tell you, we've talked about this a number and tried to find out. And I, I, uh, I didn't know what to say to her. I got angry. I stormed out of the house and uh, got in the car and then I phone call. I better go back in and talk to her. So I decided to go back inside and, and said to her, I said, who did you talk to? And she said, they gave me a number uh, to call in Austin. And I called it and they said they would have somebody get in touch with me. And this physician called me from Dallas and said that he would be down here tonight, clock with a, another physician and talk. Six, don't do that. She said, I have to call him though before three o'clock this afternoon. Don't call him. I'll take care of this problem. I promise you I'll take care of this problem. A few weeks later, I called this friend of mine who shared with me in my office and asked her if she knew anybody in the community that was in the program of recovery. And she said, and I said, could I talk with these people? And she said, I'll do this. Uh, and if they choose to call you, they can do so. They may not want, this didn't do a lot for my, I um, finally acquiesced in July and I told her I needed some help. And uh, so she, uh, she called one on the telephone and he called me that afternoon at two o'clock in the office and said, can you come by and visit with me tonight? And many of you know this guy, his name is Ransom Buchholz from Temple. He was chief of surgery at the VA center there for many, many years, and Ransom's dead now, bless his heart. He died about seven or eight years ago. And Ransom spent about an hour or two that evening talking to me about him, and, and when I left, I knew I wanted what he had and about doing it, and I was frightened to death. I got home and, and poured myself a drink of bourbon as soon as I hit the deck, and my son came around to the kitchen door, and he said, Dad, he said, did Mom is in the emergency room at the hospital. And, uh, and I walked over to the refrigerator and got the bourbon out in the sink so I can claim sobriety that night. And, and uh, I went to the hospital and the problem was taken care of. And the next day I called my friend and I said, would you meet me? And I don't remember a lot of what happened that night except that in, a, in the Texas tradition, everybody in the, in the room, and there must have been about, uh, gave their name and their sobriety. And I said to myself, God, I'm in the room. I don't want to <laughs> stop drinking, and I just want to mellow out a little and find out just sort of what it's like, you know, to, to uh, have a few sober days. And I, uh, so I really didn't, was controlling it, but I was asked to come to a meeting every day for 90 days. But I went to 106 meetings, and, and um I began to understand that, but that I, but, but for me at the time, if that was true, then I had to have something take the place of what I was doing in order to deal with how I felt. I've heard it said by people in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that reality has become so difficult for me, I had to drink in order to maintain and that drinking became so difficult. So I faced that dilemma, and, and so in my own mind, I would search out the words and the 
statements and the sharing at each AA for those things to help me find something to take the place. The first step of alcohol that I took the next 12 steps and in all of those steps I found I'm still an alcoholic. The program is teaching January of the following year. I um, was finishing up the fourth step and <clears throat> it took me 15 hours, but I went down on a Saturday and at six, so two days I did my fifth step with this great guy in Austin. When I drove back to Temple uh, that Saturday afternoon, after, I thought often of uh, some of the tapes that I'd heard that I thought was uh, was very important in my life and it's left out on the way and I want to go back and cover it because in my denial I had to reach a point where I understood what it meant to be crazy and think that I and I was reminded of this story that I was told and if I could of this gentleman in the and standing in a back alley who was in, standing at the back door of bourbon and looking at it and then taking the cap in his hand and raising the bottle he's <laughs> uh, that's how I that's how I approached this thing and I I lived daily for one more chance to, to make things different and it wasn't and the only way I was in April of 1982 uh, Ransom Buchholz went to when he stepped out of the hotel and was mugged and uh, cut severely on the arm and was bleeding without beating him and he had enough sense to tie arm and stop the bleeding temporarily until uh, uh, but could not go uh, hell that spring in April and so I've got an airplane ticket uh, he said you've got to go to this meeting I want you to go to this meeting uh, three or four weeks uh, I was in the process of and I remember going to the executive committee meeting the day after I talked to Ransom and telling them what I was doing and I told them that I, uh, I thought I was an alcoholic I was taking steps to deal with the in my recovery and I knew that through the years of my not very proud of and I wanted with the group they uh, didn't say much uh, we had a general staff meeting uh, an evening or two later which was I was asked to uh, the next day the chief of staff came by my office our group wants you to six million dollar building program and so uh, a week or two later I caught the plane and I was not a happy camper when I got there I thought I was working the program I remember I remember a statement that I had but I remember a statement that was made by Conway Hunter at the groundbreaking of a treatment center there. And Conway Hunter said that, you know, alcoholics are peculiar people. They're as sick as they are secret. And I guess I took to all of those secrets of, of what was happening in my life professionally, and I was so sick inside I could, as bad, I guess, as, as I went to every meeting uh, as long as I could stand it. And when it got so bad for me in the meeting like this, and I would go up to the room, and I would went into the hospitality room, and I was, the table was set up here with all kinds of great food, the wives of the physicians in El Paso, such a beautiful table. And, but I was sitting in the chair, 
as far back in the corner as the only entrance to the room was here. And there I was back there. And one of your group, there's a great successful physician who is well known in the community and is practicing and has got his act all together. He's sitting. It didn't take this guy long back there. needed a friend and somebody back there. So that physician came back and he in about 15 or 20 minutes. I went to the rest of the meeting and then afterwards, one of the social hours chuckled at me when he heard what I had to say about this. And he said, Tom, when you go back to Temple, what are you going to do? Are going to resign from the group? He said, let me make this. And he looked at me and he said, let me make this recommendation. You go see those two psychiatrists and you go get this physical exam done. And you do what your group asks you to do. And then if they ask you to leave, then you know that you've done everything that they ask you to do. And if you leave before you do this, you don't know, but maybe they will embrace you with their arms and say, come, we want you to stay with us. So don't do something ill-timed. I went to see two psychiatrists and uh, an intern, and they were favorable letters. I were very supportive and wrote me two nice letters. Uh, I gave the executive committee the letters at 8 o'clock. That's how it is. I went to my sponsor. We spent a week to started going to AA morning, noon, and night. Started two different meetings. Some friends of ours started a, a noon meeting in Miles, and I was very active in AA. I, went, I began putting together plans of opening a G meeting, Texas Medical Professional Group. Each year I went to the Texas Medical Professional uh, until they quit having it in about nine. I've taken your recommendations and your suggestions into my personal life and try I opened up my private office of pediatrics in 1984 and which was very successful as outside of our community successful and uh, productive Bill Wilson says that now I've <coughs> had it in my mind how the steps work in my life I have to tell you at this point my challenge to those um, that are here tonight, I recall one of our brothers quoting a prayer of Peter Marshall. It was a little bit like this, and it's part of my, it goes like this, God, something has to happen in between. IDAA and Alcoholics Anonymous, marvelous fellowship, offers up the spiritual principles let them become a part of your living and let them become a part of your service that involved locally when you go back and you work in your own AA groups. Our next speaker, speaker is Raphael C. I'm Raphael, I'm an alcoholic. I usually carry a lot of books, so I just feel safe. It's like a security blanket, but I... I'm not going to read them all. I'm, uh, you know, I came, uh, I was born and raised in, in Baja, in Mexico, in Tijuana, and I came to the United States to, with, uh, for fame and fortune. I ended up going and you know, standing. And, uh, and I, see, it never occurred to me that I was going to cross the border to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, I, I guess if I have stayed there in Mexico, because I'm such a macho man, I would have. I would be dead by now by just drinking or fighting or whatever. So for that, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm very grateful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I mean, an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I feel privileged to be here, you know, to also 
hang out with people that are in my profession, that have the same feelings, that have the same uh, fears of uh, being sued and, or uh, failing because somebody died on them, etc. And a situation that uh, in many ways I, I couldn't share in a, in a regular AA meeting. I grew up in, a, in an alcoholic family. My father was a very abusive alcoholic. You know, he would come and beat us and beat my mother. And I remember sometimes that uh, you know, he would be beating my mother. Her, her nose was bleeding, and, and I was there. You know, I was maybe, I remember maybe around 12 years old. And he would have a gun, uh, a 38 in her mouth, and he would just say, you know, I said, you cannot do anything about it. And I was, actually, I wanted to jump. And you know, my brothers and sisters, I'm the second of nine, we were surrounding the whole scene, and, and actually we wanted to jump, but he had a gun and said, well, if you jump, I said, I'm going to kill everybody, and then I'll kill myself. And that's, see, that's, that's why I quit believing in God. I, re- I remember I was 16 years old, and I grew up uh, Catholic. Uh, they took us to catechism. I knew the catechism. I knew all the prayers. I knew everything. And when I was 16, I remember as if it was yesterday, that night I said, I'm going to quit believing in God because he has not done anything if he if he really wanted to help, we wouldn't. But um, the, you know the mechanics of alcoholic family. I when he separated from my mother, I was and I self-proclaimed the savior. And I'll, I excel in in school. I was, I was always I'm the, was the second in my uh, medical school class. Uh, I drank a little bit here and there. I remember I was maybe 13 years old. We have a muffler shop, and the, the workers would drink sometimes at the end of the shift and, and they would offer me a beer and, and uh, I didn't want to look uh, weak. Um, so I, I would drink a little bit. I remember I didn't like the taste. It was kind of bitter and, and it would make me nauseated. But when I was in college, uh, we were going to the beach and all these guys, sometimes we would stop and buy some beer and I never drink it. And this, this time I drank two beers. I'll tell you, I feel very good. I remember I feeling somebody. I remember a speaker mentioned one day. I didn't change. You know, people change around me. They suddenly they like me. They they were around me, and and I, I didn't feel rejected. And I, I guess I, I drank uh, sometimes. I remember my first blackout was when I was 19 years old, and and I realized that alcohol was going to be in the middle of my studies, and so I put it on the side. You know, and when I, I and when I dated my, my wife, we just had some episode when I drank too much. But uh, I guess when I, started, when I became an intern and then went to uh, training, I trained at the University of Pittsburgh and as a big liver transplant program, and I was working day and night. I just substituted you know, alcohol for workahol. I was just working day and night. I would get a high just working day and night. I remember I was on call every other night, and then in the middle I was moonlighting and... And I was tired, but I said, oh, my God, this is good. I was at sometimes 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and waking up and some uh, nice new patient in a line, and I would just go, and I would just feel good. I feel very good. And, and I, didn't, I, I usually didn't sleep when I was on call. I, I, went, to, I went to study for the board. So I went to, and in 1987, I, came, uh, I went to uh, Visalia, California, um, after a series of interviews. And I was the only gastroenterologist there. I got there. I, I was 
got very busy, very quickly. I started making a lot of money. I had a house, you know, I had two houses, I had a nice car, I had an office, a nice family. See, everything I wanted to have, and see, in my life I always wanted to, I had this mountain. I said, once I have you know, a couple of houses, I have enough money, and a nice family and everything, I'm going to be happy. Nobody's going to screw with me. Cross my hands and I'll be happy. I'll be on the top of the mountain. But it was 1990, and I, I was on the top of that mountain that I have, you know, put in my mind. And, you know, I was very secretly, I was just thinking, oh, my God, I'm not happy yet. I'm not happy. And, and I was just drank. I celebrated. I said, this might be the end. Maybe this is, I'm meant to live to be uh, uh, 30-something, and I'll die, you know, drink. In October 1991, my kids had a very bad accident. My wife was driving a minivan, and somebody broadsided them and my son was eight and my daughter was uh, my son was in coma for uh, I'll tell you that was uh, I said God I mean after all I've done and everything and, and just you know being raised in a very uh, bad environment and I'm get all this and uh, I remember that night in the ICU I thought my son was going to die you know, my wife was asking was saying you know how is he doing I said oh and I said he's going to be okay but I, no he was very bad very badly injured so I went home some people Around there, there was another old gastroenterologist that uh, was working a little bit, and he offered to cover for me. So they covered for me for for a month. I would go home and drink, and go back to the hospital. And uh, I remember one time, I liked I didn't like to drink hard stuff. I I wanted to with beer and wine because hard stuff would make me sick. I remember I went to Costco and. And I said, well, maybe I'll buy some Jack Daniels because I like Jack and Sarah sometimes. And uh, to, so just sometimes to hit me hard, I started the alcohol, I mean, the hard liquor, and then the, with beer or wine. And then they had this big bottle, and they had one of those huge bottles of 1.75 liters. So I bought that one. I remember I, I got home, and I drank maybe like, uh, like a pint. I was so sick that I said, God, I'm going to stick with wine and beer from now on. And so I'll, I hang out with other people that drank. Uh, I was playing golf and I played with, I mean, I hang out with the, the country club people that drank. I always had these people that surrounded me that were drinking. I thought that people that went to church and they cared for the children, the parents, that the fathers, especially the, the males, the fathers, that took the kids to the football or soccer team or everything on Saturday, they were a bunch of wimps. And if they didn't drink, they were wimps. They went to church, they were wimps. And, and I, so I'll, uh, I just, uh, I don't know, towards the end, I was, I was drinking, making a fool of myself. See, I didn't drink every day. I didn't get drunk every time I drank. So I felt I was not that bad of an alcoholic. Towards the end, in 96, I remember I had a DUI and somebody, uh, my level was 0.08. And so uh, anyway, they cleared me because they said, well, maybe it's a mistake from the breathalyzer. But I started going to meetings in March of 97 because I, I knew I had a problem. I just didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't want to meet the California Medical Association as a hotline, confidential line. But I said, hell no, I'm not going to call this because they're going to nail me. I always thought that people were going to nail me. I mean, all this work I've done came to this country, being Mexican, and then having a license in California, which is very hard to get in some of the people. So I was very hesitant to ask for help. And I don't know, somehow I came to AA and I couldn't relate. I couldn't relate to much of losers. Everybody's, they're sharing what they're sharing. It's all just, 
the bunch of nerves. I mean, they, they're just worrying about every stupid thing. I mean, I mean, I just don't do that. Uh, but inside, I knew I, 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 but I said I was nervous. I mean, I remember my father used to hit us all the time and say, you know, I want to temper you. You're going to be like a steel so you won't break. And I always thought, I said, well, yeah, I'm steel. But in those days, I said, God, if I'm steel, how am I feeling so, I mean, fearful and I mean, I, I just, uh, but I was never going to tell that anybody, to anybody. In uh, July, ni- July 12, 97, I went with a, a bunch of friends, and what, we were 18 big boys, tournament in Santa Barbara, and, and one of the guys was in the program, so I said I went to hang out with him, and, and I didn't. Somehow they were bar hopping, and in the third bar I ordered a glass of, a glass of wine. I'd been sober for like a month. And then uh, I woke up in a sovereign area in Santa Barbara, and I was all in my own urine. Shoot myself. And I remember, I said, well, I want to drive up from Santa Barbara to Vaisela. It's like a five-hour drive because Vaisela is inland on the foothills of Sequoia National Park. So I said, I'm going to drive up to Sequoia National Park and fall there and kill myself and forget about the whole thing. But as I was driving, see, as I was driving up, I remember what you told me, AA told me, he said, you know, I, he said, God loves me. No matter what, God loves me, he's going to take care of me as, I mean, the moment I ask him to take care of me. And, and I, I was driving, I was crying, and, and um, I came to Visalia, that was a Sunday, that was my wife's uh, birthday, and I was 13, July 13, I said, and then I told her all these things, and that was her gift, and I said, God, I'm just such a loser, etc., and whatever, so on Monday I called this guy, Fresno is like 40 miles north, and, and he was, this guy was uh, running an outpatient program. And I called him and I said, you know, I'd like to meet with you. And so I met with him and I said, you know, I don't know, send me, I don't know, wherever all the classic alcoholics go, send me to Betty Ford, send me to where all the, the rich and famous go and all that stuff. Because I, I, in my mind, I thought that I was, um, you know, a classy, I was a classy alcoholic. So there, I said, where do the classic alcoholics meet? Or the SAA, I said, where's the classy AA people? No, where do they meet? And, and he, I was just crying and everything. I said, oh, Raphael, just sit down here. Why don't you come here for, for eight weeks to this outpatient program, so three, three times a week and whatever. And I did. But I was willing, for the first time in my life, I was willing to follow direction, to go to any length to get it. Any length to get it. Because I wanted, I wanted it. I had wanted it for a long time, but I was not willing to go to any length to get it. And um, around, uh, at, at the end of the eight weeks, I saw this guy, he was a physician, and I said, well, maybe I should see another uh, addictionologist to see, you know, to coach me, to give me some pointers to see what to do. And he said, well, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like you to commit to diversion in California for a year. And I said, I said well, well, I said, why? He said, well, you know, you look very comfortable. I think that you could relapse very quickly if you didn't have some support. And then, so I, so I went to the version, and then they say, "Well, no, this is a, this is not a year; it's a five-year program." And I almost had a heart attack. And I said, "Well, hell, I don't want to go there." And then they say, "Well, you, but we, we also check urines." And I said, "Well, but I just did alcohol. Can I have? Can I be the exception? So I don't want to do the. I didn't have the drugs." I said, "No. If you sign the contract, you do everything, or we, or Jesus, don't sign the contract." And they gave me that freedom. I said, you don't have to give, me, give us your right, your, your full name, your real name. You just, keep, just come over here, just check us out. So they gave me that freedom. So six months later, 
I met with the committee and everything, and I signed up. I signed up for it mostly because I wanted to have like, an extra insurance. You know, I, I said, God, I'm going to have this expense on a regular basis, but I knew I quit trusting myself. It's like somebody else mentioned. I, I had to run it by, by a grown-up, by another, an, another person. And since, you know, following direction, I talked to my sponsor. I said, I got a sponsor, and I started doing the steps. I met with him once a week on Wednesdays. Uh, in a coffee shop and in a little corner is kind of silent and and I shared my first step and he gave me a little hand finishing the step you know, every time I just had like few resentments at a time until I was done and then we decided to meet uh, I said you know I'd like to meet with you once a week um, and so we did it for for two years and then after two years I said well maybe maybe we don't have to meet uh, once a week at the same time, I was going to a lot of meetings. And I was going sometimes to meetings two or three times a, a day. Later on, I taper it, and I still go to an average of five meetings a week. Uh, when I was eight months in the program, somebody asked me to be the, the GSR, the general representative of the, of the group, and I did. And, and then later, they, wanted me to, they asked me if I wanted to be the alternate DCM, and I did. And then uh, while I was at alternate DCM, somebody told me if I wanted to speak at the international conference, and Minneapolis and and I did and so you know everything and somebody asked me to pick up the uh, cup of cup, uh, a cup of uh, coffee I mean that was on the floor and I did it so I've been cleaning windows and I'm doing this and that and whatever so I'm, I've been just following direction just so do tell me that's what I do and I'm here right now I'm the DCM of my district uh, California uh, actually United States and Canada were 93 areas. My area is 97. My area is, is, is uh, area seven, and my district is the district 47. And we have we have around 85 groups in my district. And when I meet with them, I had to listen to them. I had to listen to the GSRs. So I've been AA is is teaching me how to live. Uh, at the same time. I do not have a PhD in AA. I'm not, uh, I, not, I don't have a PhD in being a GSR or a DCM or anything. I'm not a speaker. I mean, I, I don't have, I'm not an expert speaker. I just concentrate on saying the truth, my, uh, my experience, my strength, and my hope. Uh, at the beginning, it was very hard to speak in front of other people because I was not telling the truth. I was telling something else because I wanted, I wanted to look good. Now I just kind of open my book, and, and that's it. I'm not hiding anything, so whatever you say, uh, you know, I, I have a thicker skin, too. I have a thicker skin. Um, I have the courage to speak when I have something to say, but I also I have a, uh, I learned to listen while, uh, while somebody shares. At the beginning, I said, you know, the GSR preamble says, uh, you know, give us, say, say have the, the courage, I mean, uh, the, the, the patience to listen while others share. The way I say, well, the patience to to listen while others say some stupidities, and also to have the courage to say some stupidities if I feel like I have them. Because every time I thought about sharing something, I say, oh no, this is not important. Oh, this is something stupid. People are going to think that I'm stupid, and all that stuff. So a little better on realizing that I'm not stupid. I just another human being that says it's not good or bad, it's not right or wrong, and it's not a winner or a loser. No. It's just that I have grown up with ideas, with patterns, with um, concepts of success and happiness that are man-made. 
that are not uh, that are that are based. Those concepts are based on, on something that is not real. Um, I'd like to I'd like to share. This is uh, not to embarrass you, but to get to know you better. Who has read this? The service manual, AA service manual. Well, this is the cheapest book in AA. It only costs a dollar and eighty cents. But uh, but in the first chapter, it says that the the legacy of service, and in AA, full recovery. We believe that full recovery it's closing the three legacies: you no know, recovery, unity, and service. And the AA's legacy of service, Bill W. says, our 12-step carrying the message is the basic service that the AA fellowship gives. This is our principal aim and the main reason for our existence. Therefore, AA is more than a set of principles. It's a society of alcoholics in action. We must carry the message, else we ourselves can wither, and those who haven't been given the truth may die. Hence, an AA service is anything whatever that helps us to reach a fellow sufferer, ranging all the way from the 12th step itself to a 10 cent, maybe now 35 cents phone call and a cup of coffee, and to AA's general service office for national and international action. The sum, of, 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 the sum total of all these services is, is our third legacy of service. Services include meeting places, hospital cooperation, intergroup offices, they mean pamphlets, books, and good publicity of almost every description. They call for committees, delegates, trustees, and conferences, and not to be forgotten. They need voluntary money contributions for within the fellowship. I have this, I have written in my books, is that if depressed, open, read, and follow. So thank you very much for letting me your service. Last but not least, we have a save the best to last here. <laughs> Tim's coming up. I don't want anybody to leave and miss this. Thank you. Gosh, I'm glad to be here. I've got mixed feelings, but uh, this is a great opportunity for me. I don't uh, do speakers' meetings very often, so this will be a little bit unrehearsed. But uh, I am uh, Tim Baldwin. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And my sobriety date uh, for a long time was the 17th of four. And after about 10 years, I finally realized I needed to move it one day to the 18th because that last day <clears throat> I had a drink that day, and it was only one beer. But that beer that I had that morning uh, inflicted more pain than everything that went before it and I knew that I had to quit. Um, for a long time I took credit for that being my sobriety date because that was the day I decided I didn't want any more but I, in looking back I realized that that every day that I've had sober has been God's day and uh, my deciding to quit didn't have any and uh, I, I want to publicly acknowledge that right now and I need to return to that thought. I uh, grew up as a preacher's son over in southern Illinois. My dad was a Baptist preacher, and a pretty nice guy, although I didn't know it at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I grew up in a small community that was, was lined almost with bars. Uh, the Main Street and Broadway Street had wall-to-wall uh, -wall bars all the way up and down. And I, was, I grew up thinking that uh, alcohol was an enemy, that, and that that's what caused alcohol. 
and that sin caused death and that, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I had a really uh, warped view of the world. One day when I was walking down the street there in Salem, Illinois with my father, and I was about him, he was the kind of guy that was uh, real friendly and uh, liked to stop and visit with everybody and never seemed to be on a schedule. He just sort of went from person to person, and he still does that. As he was doing that, I wandered into a bar <laughs> at three years of age, and I went in and sat down. It was cool there, and uh, some older guys started talking to me, and I didn't think anything of it. I didn't know that I was in a bar at the time, but he came in, and everything was pretty pretty friendly and amicable, but uh, after I got out, I was kind of told that, you know, that's a... I can remember as a kid going to the movies, that I'd go have to walk all the way down a block of these bars to get... And I was afraid that if I breathed while I was walking by these bars that I might get something. Uh, there, they had some air conditioning, but mostly just large fans and blew these fumes out, and you could really smell the alcohol going down there. But I remember all those little things as a child that I thought would protect me from the tragedy that I saw from alcoholism on the block where I lived. Um, I knew about broken homes on our block, about just uh, slow death from alcoholism. Uh, it's important for me to talk about all that because those were real primitive memories that I still have. I just want to say that that wasn't any kind of insurance against what happened to me later in life. I did pretty well. I, I had kind of a, I think I had a lot of fear as a child uh, I didn't recognize at the time. But when I went to school in the first grade, um, I had been mentally rehearsing, you know, what I was going to do the first day. I had a friend, David Lecron, that knew all of his age. So I got there at school the first day, and my dad took me there, and uh, he was, I said, well, where, what am I going to use for my school supplies? I said, I'll go get some, and I'll be right back. And he was gone all day and came back that afternoon, and I was bawling and crying. I was afraid I was going to flunk out of And I just tell that to kind of tell you something intimate about it. But anyway, I had a pretty good childhood. My parents uh, did not put a lot of pressure on me because I was a preach kid to, to act good or anything. I got a lot of pressure from the community and from the congregation at church. Very early in life, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to live in so I began to kind of be the black sheep. And But everything still went pretty well, and I started to make some kind of a reasonable social in uh, junior high. And... Uh, I can remember my brother, uh, and he kind of paved the way for me. And he wanted to take his girlfriend to the high school dance, and my dad, when I was uh, being a Baptist, that was, uh, that was something that we didn't do. And I watched he and my dad tumble all the way down in our house fighting over that issue. I thought, this is going to be tough for me, too. <laughs> but at any rate, we moved at that time uh, in the eighth grade just as I was got permission to go to a dance and I felt like I was a part of again. And, um, I took that a lot harder than I think a normal person would have. When we went to a new town, I started high school and I began drinking uh, my freshman year in high school. Uh, I had good friends there, people in the church and in the high school were good. I was on the football team and people talked to me about drinking uh, about you and I drank to get drunk and I drank, uh, you know, I would drink Everclear or vodka or whatever. So that was kind of an early start in my drinking career. Uh, I didn't realize it was a problem. I thought I was just acting. Uh, I found a girlfriend there in high school and lost all interest in alcohol. And uh, at any rate, 
but again, this kind of tells you something about me. I, I transferred all my problems to her, and so um, I tended to isolate with her, and my parents got concerned about it. So we moved again and uh, came to Oklahoma back in 19. Um, I was really, I really took that hard. I mean, the feelings that, uh, were really painful, and uh, I didn't know what to do about them. But I didn't, uh, I didn't drink as much as I used to, but, and didn't think much of it. And I decided I was going to make something out of myself. I was going to be a doctor or, or something, and started applying myself in school. And prior to this time, I'd almost flunked out of school. I started making good grades in school, and uh, but it was kind of contingent on my not drinking and not just doing what I wanted to do. I had to start studying myself. And later went on and uh, went through college, uh, did real well, uh, married the girl across the street. The clincher for me was whenever she told me that her parents would help me and uh, I started dating her before I knew that, but I had a hard time with uh, money and poverty as a child, at least I thought I did, and I had no way to go to college. Uh, my parents had put their way through college. And, I tried working and saving money, so <clears throat> at any rate, I went on through that, and uh, after a couple of years of being married to her and being around her mother and her dad, I began drinking, and I'm not saying that these people were the cause of all this, but I'm and as soon as I got through uh, college, uh, she went on to uh, take a career in physics, and I went on to medical school, and I remember the night, and I never cried over that. I never really expressed those feelings for a long time. I had a brief hiatus um, between college and medical school, about six, eight months where I went. Uh, and I also worked at night at a pizza place and, that served alcohol. And I met a waitress there, and she liked to drink like I did. We had a kind of a whirlwind romance. Uh, I didn't know then that drinking a case of beer a day meant that one was an alcoholic. I thought that was just a... But... Uh, at any rate, when I went on to medical school that fall, I kind of missed her. And I was in school, and I wasn't very happy. I wasn't comfortable with the, uh, the courses that were, but the memory work was, was. I went back and found her um, at the Aggie barbecue there and still watched her right there. She was drunk the day I proposed to her. But I thought that was going to fix everything. And <clears throat> buckled down in school and, and did fairly well, but uh, that first semester I almost flunked out of school because I didn't know that when you're drinking well for a few days. <laughs> and uh, at any rate, I determined that I was going to get through medical school no matter what. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew to get th that degree. A friend of mine introduced me to Dexedrine, a uh, pharmacist, and I became a super student. Yes. And I let all that stuff go to my head. Man. <laughs> It wasn't long, uh, somewhere in the sophomore year, I realized that I was dependent on these things and I couldn't quit. And I rationalized that I'd quit taking them when I got out of med internship and I'd take a vacation and get off that stuff. And uh, in fact, that is what I did, but it didn't turn out the way I thought. I was almost drummed out of my internship. Really, nobody had a clue. I mean, I, I think they had a clue that I was an addict, but they didn't have an idea and the director of medical education finally said, I've been talking to the pharmacist. We've been looking at the dexedrine that you've been getting out of the pharmacy, and you're selling these, aren't you? And I said, no. He said, you're, are you giving these away to the nurses? And I said, no. He says, are you taking those? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, can you get help for yourself? He didn't suggest going to an alcohol or drug treatment facility. 
and I didn't know what one was, but I thought if I could just get a month off, I'd be all right. So I got a month off from my internship, and what I was able to do during that time was to reduce the amount of medicine it took for me just to get through the day to where I could function and walk and talk and not be psychotic and all that. And I finished out my internship, and um, then I decided to take that vacation. And I holed up in a house there in Fort Worth, Texas, in a rent house, and um, just stopped all the medication, all the Dexedrine. Um, that was the main identified problem in my mind. It was horrible. It was horrible. I began to lose my mind. I began to um, not be rational. Uh, I would sleep for days at a time, go to the the uh, filling station where they had Ripple wine. I could put on my champion bottle of Ripple wine, some donuts, and try to get straightened. And I languished around like that until the money ran out and uh, finally decided to call my wife, which is some idea of how desperate I was. I lived with her for two or three months. Uh, we didn't know anything about alcohol treatment. I guess it was available. She asked me numerous times, won't you please come? And I said, no, I'm just going to tough it out. Well, she got tired of that after a while and uh, threw me out. And I lived basically from house to house and on the street for about 18 months after I was introduced to pot at that time. Uh, lived in the park some. My wife had some financial interest in my being, and they were waiting for me to get a job. And finally, the court found me a job through the Oklahoma State Medical Association. They didn't have a physician's recovery program at that time. I went ahead and talked to Ed Kelsey out there at the Medical Association. It's so really passive-aggressive. I said, you know, I want the lowest-paying job in the state, if you can get me the lowest-paying job in the state, because they're going to determine this alimony based on how much I can. I don't want her to get a penny. <laughs> That's the kind of person I was. Uh, that lowest-paying job in the state turned out to be a terrific enabling job. I lived, just, I don't know if you'd call it living or not, but I lived uh, doing menial work, uh, nothing that was really challenging medically, and coming home every night, either or drunk, or both. And uh, by 1977, it was both. Uh, I went down to the state legislature at that time to be the doctor of the day and ran into an attorney down there who was now... I remembered him as the man who represented my first wife in the divorce. So we got to talking, and somehow he got a hold of her, and she called me then and uh, wanted to make amends for it. And this had been several years. I had already remarried. Uh, the two was dying, and I was drinking, and I was missing. She talked me into coming over and talking to her. Left town, went over to Tulsa, and uh, spent two or three days over there, and finally just coughed up the fact, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to drugs, and I emptied my pockets. I had all these pills in there, uh, painkillers, tranquilizers, you name it. And she started talking to me about God. I started crying. Uh, her daughter, she had remarried, her daughter asked me what was wrong. That was the first time I was able to admit it. And I cried that whole weekend and came back uh Bill Water and went to work that Monday morning. Was not in my right mind. Uh, I was in really bad withdrawal, and... Uh, one of the doctors there that kind of kidded with me a lot uh, saw that I wasn't acting right. He was kind of kidding me, and I I got in his office, and I said, Joe, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I was all this time. I've been hiding it. And, of course, I wasn't hiding it from anybody. But said, would you kneel and pray with me? And I did that. No. Uh, we began a process then of trying to detox and still work, and uh, and we were successful in doing that. 
And he asked me at that point if I thought I was an alcoholic. And I said, well, I don't know about that. And he had known a little bit about AA. He was not an AA at the time, but he had been. And he had relapsed, but he's still a spiritual person who helped me. I went on and tried some control drinking for a while, um, three beers on Wednesday night. That lasted a couple of months. And uh, by the summer, I was back up to uh, a case of beer a day plus vodka, whiskey. Um, I felt like that my problem was that I was all stuck there in that relationship at home. Uh, my wife laid on the couch all the time. She was in a coma a lot of the time. She required a lot of attention and care. and. Um, I didn't resent that. I loved her deeply uh, and had loved her uh, for a long time. But um, I got to thinking, you know, well, what about me? And I didn't have the courage to do anything, but through a series of uh, acting out experiences, getting involved in an affair and then being uh, kind of goaded into trying to get into a real medical practice and not a fake medical practice and do something, and I began to take risks for the first time in my life. I began to actually sign up for jobs I knew I couldn't do <laughs> and take risks. And the end result of all that was that um, that I was fixing to be fired from this little low-level job that I had and began to work emergency departments and had the idea that I was going to get a divorce again. And uh, But what happened was uh, everybody by this time pretty fed up with my behavior and my drinking. I had been on the employee assistance committee there and this sort of thing and asked a guy who had been coming by my office um, pretty regularly every Thursday. And he shared something with me that, you know, that he was an alcoholic and uh, kind of told me a little bit about it. And, I, and um, so I finally went and asked him, I said, could you tell me whether or not I'm an alcoholic? Well, why don't you come on down to the office and we'll do some of these self-assessment tests. And I... He said, you have seven out of ten indicators for alcoholism. I thought, well, what, um, does that really mean I'm an alcoholic? And I started arguing. But anyway, to make a long story short, I went to treatment. And uh, I went over there to find out if I was an alcoholic or not. I went over to Tulsa to a little 28-day treatment center. But something happened over there. And I didn't do very well. I was voted least likely to succeed. And, but... Something happened over there. I started going to these nighttime AA meetings, and I, I don't remember much about the treatment center except the groups and all that, but I really looked forward to those uh, AA meetings at night, and I, re I remember hearing some speakers talk, and I, I just naturally took to that. It was like maybe there is some hope, and I followed that that lead, and it's, it's served me well since. Uh, when I got out of treatment, I started going to meetings regularly. Uh, I got crossways with my sponsor because every time I talked to him, I felt worse, and I said, you feel better. And every time I talk to you, I feel worse. And I do pretty good until you talk to me. And so I fired him for a while and uh, went on, took another job here in Oklahoma City and was offered my old job back. And started coming to AA here. Uh, we have over 100 AA meetings here in Oklahoma City a day. I'm not sure, but there are plenty of meetings. The thing that um, this guy that got me to go to treatment did before I, I kind of digress, but I want to mention this, because I had gone to AA for 90 meetings in 90 days and to find out if I was an alcoholic before I went to treatment and decided I wasn't, and then I had to go back to him with my tail legs because he promised me that I'd drink again. 
Um, he pulled out a little red book, and I don't know what that red book to this day means. He says, we need to get some different help for you. And he called over to Enid, Oklahoma, to a veterinarian over there, Bobby, who had a group called IDAA. And uh, I was over there working one day in the hospital and was really feeling rough, and I called, uh, his, I called him for help, like I was supposed to do. And uh, his wife answered the phone and said, there vacation, but uh, if I was at work, and I said, when are you going home from work? And I said, well, I'm not going home from work till Monday. She said, you're going to be over there all that time? I said, yeah. And she says, can you kind of hold on till we get back? And I said, man, that's not what I'm looking for. You know, I was hoping to be told I need to go home right now. <laughs> so in the next two or three days, uh, I forgot about that phone call. I began to feel better, and I thought, I'm going to be all right. Bob G. called me on Sunday afternoon, and uh, I didn't have any idea who he was, and he showed up there at the hospital, took me back in the library and talked to me about alcohol, and invited me to come to some of the groups, and I did. I came to the meetings and heard other doctors share in those home group meetings in Enid, and uh, finally was intervened on by that group, and I, I need to tell that because that's the way I got into AA. I didn't have a big burning desire to stay in IDAA or any of that, but I, that's how I got here. And um, I didn't, I went to the professional group for a couple of years. I had some codependency issues and I wanted to go away to codependency treatment and I was told that my program wasn't good enough and finally I got a chance to talk to Conway Hunter and ask him what he thought. And he said, well, it's kind of a new deal, he didn't know much about it, but if I had any secrets, I might ought to go. So I went. and. Uh, the codependency treatment, uh, two years later, after two years of dryness, was a real uh, breakthrough for me. I finally was able to get the focus back on myself, preparing to take an inventory in some manner. I did that uh, in treatment, and it was a real healing experience. I did a fourth and fifth step in that second treatment center. I had not done one in the first treatment. And when I came home, I started going to Al-Anon. Uh, continued in AA and I uh, did that for about eight years. Also, uh, they had suggested that I might need some psychological help, so I went and saw a recovery counselor after a couple of years. And she asked me, she said, how are you staying sober? And I said, well, I'm going to meetings and I'm talking to my sponsor and I'm calling on the telephone. And, and she said, uh, what steps are you working? And I said, well, you know, I've been working that third step and I took the fourth. She said, well, we're gonna go back and do this all over. So after about four or five years of work with her, I asked her where we were, and <laughs> uh, I can laugh about that now, but you know, it makes a lot of sense now that I finally figured out some of the things that were going on, because it was real important uh, for me t to have somebody else listen to my life story, the long version, to get through some of the lies and the deceptions that come from being an adult child or, or whatever. Um, that was a real healing experience for me, and it gave me confidence that maybe I could work this AA program if I, if I would stay serious. So I've basically done that, and I've done everything that I've been asked. I've done other uh, side projects and spiritual growth. But my main thing that's, that's helped me to be happy, and uh, in spite of a lot of things that have gone on around me, has been the uh, feeling of walking into an AA clubhouse and knowing that I'm not alone, and I'm with people who care and understand. I never had that before. Uh, I'm real grateful for that. It seems like everything that uh, 
that I've needed in life has come to me. I haven't had to go chase down a lot of people to make amends. I haven't had to chase down an IDAA meeting. Uh, I don't have to run all over town looking for the best AA meeting anymore. The best one's right down the street from where I live. It moved right in my neck. And so I've been very fortunate. And I know that uh, looking back that uh, that God has been looking out for me long before I got sober. I had a wonderful and special relationship with I've had a lot of uh, health problems in the last four or five years, uh, failed surgeries, um, bad pain problems and all that. And all that has uh, brought me closer to God. Uh, I didn't like didn't like going through that, but um, I'm sort of a foxhole uh, prayer still. I I kind of get on the get on a deal of going pretty good and and start to take credit for what's happening. So that brought me to my knees again. My daughter, um, who's uh, just turned nine years of age, taught me to pray at night on my knees. I never want to do that at night. I'd do it in the morning, but darn if I was going to go and do it twice in one day. And, and I've really been experiencing a lot of dramatic uh, relief and results from that. And so I don't know really what it is I'm trying to say, except that uh, to the extent that I've turned everything over to God, things have gotten better. I have a good business now. I don't have any... Uh, financial problems anymore. I'm still not married, um, but I'm not. It's not. That's not a big deal to me anymore. Um, I wake up every day happy, and I darn sure never thought I was going to live this long. <laughs> Thank you for your attention.